Okay, good to see this vast crowd. It's good to be together. Hoping it warms up a little bit out there for the second hour group, but we'll see what happens. Maybe it's going to swell the crowd in here in weeks to come. All right, today we're in Hosea chapter 4 as we continue our study in this uh, very important uh, prophetic material. We are le- we're, t- we're starting a new section. The first three chapters are what we might call the autobiographical section, where we have an intermixing of Hosea's personal life with uh, his marriage to this promiscuous woman, Gomer, and the three children with the extraordinary names that they're given. Uh, that's intertwined with the whole discussion of Israel's relationship to the Lord of which Gomer's marriage is the picture. But now, starting in chapter 4, Hosea, his marriage, recedes into the background. We hear nothing more about Gomer or anything personally about Hosea himself from here on to the end of the book. But obviously now, the relationship of the Lord and his people Israel comes front and center. We've seen that, that idolatry is the fundamental problem in the north, uh, the northern part of, of Israel. And in this chapter, what I really see happening is that that whole idolatry theme is expanded so that we get a deeper understanding of what the problem is. So follow along as I read uh, not quite the whole chapter. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not flourish because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. My people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills. 
under oak, poplar, and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution, and your daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. So, the themes of prostitution from Gomer's marriage to Hosea that are in the background are still flowing through here. The greater prostitution is the prostitution of idolatry, and that, that runs all through here as, as it's described. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. So, let's uh, think then further about idolatry and where, is it, where it leads. The fundamental problem is what we may call the deadly exchange. And that's, uh, that's in verse 7 of chapter 4. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. It's this exchange. The living God for that which is shameful or disgraceful, uh, the piece of wood that is worshipped, that is the fundamental problem with idolatry. Jeremiah, 150 years later, talks about this problem uh, in a similar way. Now in the southern kingdom of Judah, But it's the same problem. He says, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. So so it's the glorious God who can simply be called our glory. To know the God of the Bible, this magnificent, holy, glorious God is given up to worship that which is not a god at all. This is uh, repentance in reverse, I guess we could say. Huh? Remember the call of the prophets is again and again to repentance. And we noticed those words of Paul to the Thessalonian Christians last week where he describes their conversion. He says, you turned to God from idols. Now, this is just the opposite. This is a turning from the knowledge of the true God back to idols. Repentance in reverse. And it is a reverse repentance, a deadly exchange, which is fueled by the leaders in Israel. The prophets... Some false prophets, the priests, and the rulers as well. And if you've been reading through Hosea, you'll find that these various groups are spoken of, largely the priests, but also the, uh, the civil leaders, the, uh, the kings, the rulers. And uh, uh, this is the, uh, the challenge here. Hosea says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. 
Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. Prophets, priests, and rulers are functioning here actually to destroy the people. That's why in Scripture, the the so-called ordinary people come in for challenges, but it's much more leadership. The, the Old Testament prophets are much more focused on the leaders in Israel. And when you get to the New Testament, it's the same with Jesus, isn't it? Who, who gets the bulk of his opposition? Well, it's the Pharisees. The ones who, he says, sit in the seat of Moses. Moses is the great teacher of Israel. The Pharisees sit in his seat and they come in for the great sharp criticism of Jesus. That's very much an Old Testament approach as well. Leadership is so important. And uh, I I think in America today, we can see that big struggle is for good leadership. And there's a a dearth of it. Uh, And that's not not just a political statement, although it, it is political. And it goes across... Across the board, in both parties, we have a great lack of good, healthy leadership in our nation and, unfortunately, in our churches as well. The fundamental problem is the deadly exchange of the knowledge of God for following idols. Now, it seems to me that in verse 1, we're given an elaboration of uh, what I'm going to call the roots of the problem. I mean, how do we get into this situation of idolatry, and and what does it look like more specifically? Here's uh, Here's the word of the Lord to the Israelites. The Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land three things. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Now, I'm going to render those a little bit differently. Uh, Let's take a look at them in reverse order. So let's start with no acknowledgement of God in the land, or simply no knowledge. No knowledge of God. There is a claim to know God. I imagine this statement came as a kind of a rude shock to a lot of the Israelites to hear Hosea say this. They'd say, well, what do you mean? Surely they knew that Yahweh was the God who had delivered them from slavery in Egypt hundreds of years before. They knew those stories. They still celebrated some of the great religious feasts of Israel. Uh, So they knew about Yahweh, but they did not, they didn't know him in the way that he needed to be known. They didn't know him in a vital, personal relationship. I think that's why the NIV translates this, there is no acknowledgement of God in the land. Their lives did not reflect a real understanding of who Yahweh was. Now they thought they did. Uh, Israel says... Chapter 8, our God, we know you. 
God says, no, not the case. When they say they know me, their nose like Pinocchio is growing. They don't know what that claim means. They don't really have understanding. No knowledge of God. That's part of the root of their idolatry. How can you really know the God of the Bible who delivers his people out of Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai and says, I'm giving you my covenant. And here is rule number one for my covenant. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself any images and you shall not bow down and worship them. And yet in Israel, the supposed knowledge of God is combined with the worship of calf images in Dan and Bethel and with, uh, with the endorsement of Baal worship. How does that work? How can this claim, oh God, we of Israel know you, how does that work? God says it doesn't work at all. There's no knowledge of God in the land. <clears throat> Secondly, what does the NIV say? There is no love. Uh, I think it would be better for us to render this, there's no loyalty to the covenant. Because this is the, uh, that important word that we talked about back in our first session together. It's this word hesed in Hebrew. And hesed uh, can, is often translated as uh, as mercy or loving kindness. Uh, When David in Psalm 23 says, uh, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, he's talking there about hesed, the same idea. So it is often translated as mercy, loving kindness. But, But I'd rather go in the direction of steadfast love or covenant faithfulness. A covenant is, is an agreement, a legal agreement, that has been subscribed to by multiple parties. And they say, yeah, these are the obligations. We're going to keep these obligations to one another. Hesed is people saying, I'm going to do this. I I am going to live in accordance with this agreement. In Israel, there is no hesed. There's no commitment to live by the covenant that God has given to his people. Part of the problem with that is it shows that they don't understand who the Lord is. And you're back to the first statement No knowledge of God. They don't understand that it is the very nature of the God of the Bible to act in covenant faithfulness to his people. And they're to reflect that. Again, a century and a half later, Jeremiah, in the devastating time of the destruction of Jerusalem, as he saw the city collapsing and the people going into exile, in the, uh, the book which is his lamentations, uh, his cries of grief, he says, the steadfast love, the hesed 
of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You know what the word for mercy is? It's ruhamah. Remember the name of the second child of Hosea? Lo ruhamah. No more mercy. But Jeremiah, in the sadness of his day, says, no, God's hesed and his ruhamah, they abide. That's his character. So the Israel that claims to know God, in fact, does not know God because their behavior, their character is not shaped by his character. No loyalty to the covenant. And then that first one there, which NIV says there's no faithfulness. I'm going to render that there's no truthfulness or integrity. And of course, if there's no truthfulness or integrity, that has a result that that there's no consistency. There's nothing you can rely on in your dealings with people. This, uh, this driver was having a bad day, huh? Uh, I don't even know if, uh, if they survived that. That's a big tree. Big tree down in a storm. What's the problem? The, the tree looked big and strong, but it lacked integrity. It lacked wholeness. There was rot working on the inside. And it had disastrous effects. So here with, uh, with Israel, there was rot working on the inside. The Israelites themselves lacked integrity. They lacked a commitment to live according to God's truth. And the result was going to be disaster for them as a nation and for others. That's the root of the problem with regard to idolatry. No knowledge of God, no understanding of really who he is, no loyalty to his covenant, and no openness to having his truth penetrate our lives and make us people of integrity. Now, out of that, then, grows what we can call the web of sin, and that's verse 2. So the Lord says there's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. But here's what there is. There's cursing, there's lying and murder and stealing and adultery. Now what does that say? Well, among other things, it says there are no standalone sins, friends. It's not like Israel is... uh, you know, they've got some Baal worship going on, and otherwise, they're, uh, they're fine folks. People you'd want for neighbors, right? That's not the issue as, uh, as Hosea brings it before us. Sin is a web. It's intertwined. Even the Ten Commandments we need to see as, as a whole. Those aren't ten isolated commandments. Those are integrally woven together. And it starts with the prohibitions against idolatry. I'm the Lord your God. 
Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make images. Don't bow down to them. And then it moves on to the second table in which we've got all kinds of guidance for the way we are to live together as human beings. Now notice in Israel, idolatry gets going and pretty soon the whole of civil society is falling apart. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. That, by the way, gets about five of the Ten Commandments right there. So they are intertwined. That may be helpful in thinking about the statement that uh, the Apostle James makes when he says that if a person offends in one commandment, they become guilty of all the commandments. It's a striking statement. But I think it has something to do with this idea of the interwovenness of our lives. And there's no standalone sins. Those who get trapped in adultery are deeply involved in dishonesty and lying. They, they just go together, right? The Apostle Paul understood this in Romans 1 when he talks about the progress of sin in, uh, in the ancient world. He says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. That's the idolatry issue. No knowledge of God. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. This this is like Paul is reading Hosea chapter 4, huh? And just expanding the list a bit. The web of sin. And what will come out of that? What will come out of it for Israel? What will come out of it for any society that follows this course? Well, the answer is that the result is going to be chaos. At the end of this chapter, verse 19... The Lord says, a whirlwind will sweep them away. And then that is picked up again in chapter 8 in in what has actually become a proverb that a lot of people recognize even today. For they sow the wind, but they will reap the whirlwind. Sow the wind. Engage in idolatry in its various forms. And in some of these sins that Paul has talked about, and it will come back. Remember we talked when we looked at Job about that kind of basic principle. It doesn't always work out immediately in people's lives, but the basic principle is fair enough. What we reap, we sow. There's that agricultural principle, and uh, 
It's rooted right back here in uh, Hosea as well. Sow the wind, reap the whirlwinds. Got looking at these pictures this week. This is, uh, this is the ordered, uh, beautiful city of Nuremberg, Germany. Beautiful old buildings. Uh, soldiers marching. If you could see the, uh, if you could see the armbands, the Nazi swastika, there. Nuremberg was the site of a yearly gathering of the Nazi party from 1923 to 1938, right up to the Second World War. Great displays of unity and power. But you know, in all those years, Germany, particularly the Nazi party, was sowing to the wind. Sowing the seeds of hatred, of violence, of racism, of envy. You sow the wind and you reap the whirlwind, the chaos. Nuremberg, 1923 to 1938. Nuremberg, September 1945, just after the war ended. Uh, those ladies are sitting outside little hovels, apparently where they were finding shelter and setting up housekeeping with the, uh, the rubble that was left. The result of the web of sin, when it's indulged, we sow the wind, we reap the whirlwind, the result is chaos. You know that from your own life personally, right? You know that tendency to move toward chaos. If you are sloppy in your life. If you sow the wrong things, you have bad results. <clears throat> is, it, uh, is it appropriate, do you think, to draw any analogies to our current situation? <clears throat> do you feel the threat of chaos in Western culture? I certainly do. And it, it seems to me that since the Second World War, where America emerged as the great world power, it seems to me that in an awful lot of that 75 years since, America has worshipped the gods of power, Wealth, success, 
uh, we've certainly been troubled by the seeds of our history of racism, which we just can't seem to get beyond. Uh, and right now, it's feeling like chaos is at the door, friends. The church has not escaped, it seems to me. The church uh, in many places in America is in shambles. Uh, It seems we cannot get through a week without a fresh revelation of some major scandal or failure. And I look at Hosea and I see the indictment against priests, prophets, and leaders And I think our churches are suffering from giant leadership vacuum or just plain failure. I think idolatry in its various forms has slipped into the church. It's not just the broader culture. It's there too. The web of sin. Here's what the Lord says. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning among the tribes of Israel. I proclaim what is certain. Now, it's hard to date all the different parts of Hosea. He ministered, we saw the first week together, he ministered over a long period of time, maybe 50 years. So when you read the different sections, you're not sure just where it comes from. If this statement is relatively early in his ministry and relatively early in the reign of Jeroboam II, who lived for a long period of time, then then I can believe that these words just sounded very strange to people. Because Jeroboam II was a pretty powerful uh, leader. They were regaining some territories. The Assyrians still hadn't thumped them very badly. And, uh, you know, there was some wealth circulating around, at least in the upper levels. I can imagine that the words of a prophet like Hosea just seem like so much uh, naysaying. I proclaim what is certain. No, 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 no. You know, that's the way prophets are. They They just have kind of a... A bad day occasionally, you have to kind of put up with them. They're not really bad people. You know, that's sort of talking down and disregarding his words. But the reality is that Hosea would live to see the total destruction of the north. Jeroboam would die. Almost every king who succeeded him in short order, I think all but one, gets assassinated In 20 years, the nation crumbles and the Assyrians are in charge. The calf idols that they worshipped are taken off to Assyria as part of their loot. And uh, 27,000 people go into exile. So where will we be? What about America? What about the American church? Well, you know, part of God's character is that he's long-suffering and patient and always desirous that his people should repent. 
And maybe that's what, you know, that's what we can pray for. That's what we can hope for and, and certainly seek to have that kind of spirit ourselves in which we are humble and listening to the Lord and responsive to his word. But we may not see that because we may be in a day like Hosea's day when uh, certain things have been put in place for long enough that God says, all right, uh, you have ignored my word, you've ignored me long enough. We don't know. But as with all of Scripture, the more I read it, the more I see that even the words of judgment come with words of invitation. We need to read them that way. And so I've been thinking about uh, these verses right near the close of chapter 4. The Lord says, the Israelites are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Powerful image there, especially those of you that grew up on the farm, right? You know that the heifer that gets out of the fence is a challenge to get back in because they want to go everywhere but where you want them to go. The Israelites are like that. They're stubborn. They don't want to follow the Lord. They don't want to retain him in their knowledge and understanding. But the Lord's desire is to pasture them like lambs, to bring them into a place of abundance of food and rest and safety, what we've called shalom, comprehensive well-being. That's God's desire. His desire for Israel, his desire for you and me, his desire for the American church. It's our attitude toward him that is the key thing, isn't it? An attitude of submission, of listening, of obeying, or that stubborn heifer in me that says, God, right now it's not convenient. Right now I have other plans. There's other things that I want to do. But the patient God, the God of hesed, of covenant faithfulness, is there inviting me to turn back, to repent, to return to him. As he invites you, as he invites us as a church, and indeed I think as he invites us as a nation to turn back to him. What will we do with that invitation? What are you doing with it right now, even today? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come to you uh, this morning with a sense of uh, solemnity as we've uh, looked at these words, which are powerful words and hard words, and we don't like to think, God, that they really apply to us, that we might be responding to you in ways that are very similar to Israel, that we might have idolatries in, in our hearts, things that we regard more important than our relationship with you, 
things that compete with our love for you. Oh God, help us to see, help us to understand, help us to acknowledge you, and help us like those early Thessalonian believers to turn from idols, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Lord, we want to know you. We want to be people who are marked by your name. And we want to see you at work in our church, in our lives, in our nation. Will you pour out the grace of repentance and faith upon us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.